My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. This is the second episode of the Good Books episode of the Good Life podcast. Uh, McGregor Duncan and I are today discussing uh, a curious book called The Vanishing American Adult uh, by American Senator Ben Sass. There's something slightly weird about a couple of people who were raised on the progressive side of politics in Australia discussing a book by an American Republican. Uh, we're hoping to uh, use this discussion as much as a jumping off point to thinking about challenges of uh, parenting and living well and maybe even stoicism. Uh, so, Mac, thank you for uh, joining me for a second time. It's good to be with you, Andrew. So... Ben Sass lays out the, uh, the, the problem that he sees uh, Americans, not just American youths, but Americans as a whole facing. He has this uh, lovely tale that when he's president of Midland College uh, and uh, asks a group of students to uh, put decorations onto a Christmas tree, and he says he's shocked when he returns to this 20-foot-high Christmas tree to see that they've only put decorations on the bottom seven or eight feet, the bits that they could uh, could reach, um, and, uh, and seems to be painting a picture of uh, young Americans not being willing to try tough, tough things. Does this resonate with uh, how you see uh, American youths and perhaps Australian youths changing? Well, I mean, well, you can always find a, a story that's uh, capable of uh, confirming your own biases. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was, I think that's an interesting, it's an interesting tale. Um, and perhaps it does reflect uh, the fact that um, <clears throat> that young Americans and perhaps young Australians too uh, are somewhat reactive uh, today. Um, uh, at the same time, I mean, I think uh, I think there probably you know there are many other examples that we could give of of, of the ways that students and 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 young Americans and Australians are are doing so much better than in in previous times. Mm. There's been this whole spate of books, uh, uh, iGen being probably the most famous one, uh, but others describing the backseat generation, talking about how young Americans are more likely to be living at home, less likely to be married, uh, more likely to be playing video games. I think Ben Sass quotes a statistic that the typical young American has played 14,000 hours of video games by age 21. Uh, and uh, and uh, the growth of a, an environment in which uh, uh, kids are more likely to be living at home and less likely to be doing hard things. Um, that uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald line that, uh, that Sass quotes, nothing any good isn't hard. Um, do, you, uh, do, do you see in your own life uh, elements of hard work being, being important or, or is Sass sort of overplaying that? Well, again... Uh you know, I mean, I think, you know, at, at one level, young students have never worked harder, uh, you know, in, in their in their studies. 
you know, the, the competition and the arms race in order to get accepted into top quality universities and to get uh, good quality jobs is probably more intense than ever before. And so, you know, on, on, on one level, kids are obviously working extremely hard. I guess the question is, what are, what are they working at? And, you know, there tends to be a, a much more intense focus and concentration on certain, on certain skills and certain things, uh, perhaps at the expense of a broader array of experiences. And so, you know, I think it's definitely true uh, that... <clears throat> That, uh, that young children are not doing uh, the diversity of things that they were in the past. And obviously Ben Sass talks about uh, how you know, kids are not exposed uh, to as many things. Uh, they're not uh, being asked to do chores uh, at home. They're not experiencing the diversity of the workplace. Uh, you know, they're very much focused on, um, on getting good grades and getting into top quality schools. It's certainly true of middle class or upper class uh, our students and there's definitely you know that definitely comes at a significant cost I think and well I think this is just part of a more general specialization that we see within society um, and I think you know as I said there are definitely costs associated with that and in the realm of sport I sort of wonder whether he's overplaying I mean sport was important in both our our upbringing I did rash walk and triathlons you were uh, an AFL uh, player uh, and I look now at some of the sporting performances uh, by uh, young kids and you know, they're, they're setting extraordinary records. Um, so you've got high schoolers running four-minute miles, uh, it, which must surely require a, a level of hard work uh, that, uh, that exceeds what their parents and grandparents put in. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. And, you know, I think that within the academic sphere it reflects what I just said a minute ago you know, to sit the HSC in Australia or to get admission to a top quality university in the US requires a dedication that was probably unknown to us mm. or to previous uh, generations. It requires a very, very intense work ethic, but as I said, very specialised um, and not necessarily a creative work ethic either. Uh, so very much a, a function of the hours that you put in. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that doesn't necessarily prepare you for the world in which a lot of people will eventually enter. And so, <coughs> excuse me, within, um, within uh, you know, within the workplace or, uh, you know, within society more generally, uh, the requirements today, uh, um, you know, that you be adaptable and flexible, uh, that you be willing to, um, to work with a lot of ambiguity and it's not clear that, you know, that intense dedication and focus to, you know, achieving uh, entrance criteria or, uh, or to regurgitating facts is necessarily good preparation for that world. And that experience too of uh, trying a lot of things and finding that that don't fit or making mistakes, I think, is uh, is enormously important. Uh, you know, I think about the decline in uh, the share of uh, high schoolers who have a part-time job. 
Uh, part-time jobs are often where you're at the bottom of the pecking order. Uh, you tend to be you know, mucking up and making mistakes, uh, whether you're doing a, a newspaper round or working at McDonald's. Um, and and those, those, ex those experiences, I think, are, are useful in giving you a, a bit more of a sense of, of humility in, in workplaces. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's right. And, you know, it raises that question of what's education for? Uh, you know, and what's you know in in the broadest possible sense, you're preparing for a for a lifetime. And you're preparing to live a a well, you know, well-rounded life. Um, and so, in that sense, what you ought to be looking for from an education is not just hitting the books, but it's an exposure to the broadest array of experiences that you can you can find. Um, so, you know, and that's certainly one point that that uh, that Ben Sass. Uh, hits on, um, and certainly is looking to achieve with his uh, with his with his own children, um, and so. But even but even if you were to look more narrowly, you know, as I said before, even 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 if you were preparing your children for the workplace, uh, it's not clear that such a narrow specialisation and a narrow focus on mm. academics um, uh, is 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 suitable for that for that for that world. And, and then you're left with that that additional question, which is, um, you know, that education today tends to uh, it tends to be very prescriptive, and so it tend it's focused on um, on <clears throat> on the sort of demonstration of skills acquired, and in the in the process you lose a lot of the creativity and the the curiosity that just goes with education. Um, and I sort of, you know, I think in my own case, and this is probably true for you as well, Andrew, you know, when I reflect back on my own university education, you know, the value was not in the lectures that I attended, which were few and far between, um, but the fact that I spent a lot of time in the library just reading out of curiosity. Um, and it's, you know, in, in part, I think what you're looking for in education is to spark that that interest and that curiosity in someone that leads them to, you know, to inquire uh, for them for themselves, and that paradoxic paradoxically that actually sets you up better for not only for for life but also for, you know, for professional success. Mm. Yes, I think about my undergraduate where probably being on the student newspaper on Iswar at Sydney University taught me as much as uh, the political science that I studied or, you know, when I was at Harvard having the opportunity to attend uh, talks by people like Jeff Sachs was as important as, as doing the statistics. Um, that kind of, that, that ability to, to have a bit of free time and search around. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I worry about an environment in which people become too specialised and I like models like um, UNSW, which requires people to study out of field or uh, the Melbourne University model, which really emphasises much more in an American-style four-year liberal arts education. And it's not, just, it's not just that question of being a recipient of the, you know, the best that's been thought and said. Uh, as Matthew Arnold once wrote, it's 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 what you're looking for in your children is a sense of agency on behalf of themselves, so that they're charting what they want to learn about the world. And I thought one thing that was nice in Ben Sass's book is the way he talks about, you know, the the bookshelf of of most notable or most important mm. books. 
um, in a person's life and and that it's your job to it's your job to uh, to scope that and to choose and, and there's a nice so that I mean what I really liked about that was that sense of agency that it gives to his children this is not this is not the canon that's being handed down from on high and that you must read this is for you to choose these are the books that are important to you and so as a result of that it encourages very wide reading because you're you're now responsible for what mm. you know what is it that's meaningful and important to you um, in order to choose you need to have read widely before you narrow that down and it, it's putting <laughs> excuse me it's putting the choice in your hands and I really like that uh, that concept um, and I think in sort of within that kernel is is some is a is a broader insight and you know you'd mentioned at the beginning the iGen sort of on the, you know sort of backseat participants this idea that um, this idea that we, you know, that we focus much more on consumption uh, than on production, um, and in that in that sense that you're just being a consumer mm. of whatever is of whatever is given to you, uh, rather than you yourself being the person who's responsible for for putting together the program or the books or the lessons or the experiences that you yourself want. Uh- so since you mentioned the uh, five-foot bookshelf, we should uh, delve into some of uh, Ben's ideas as to what it should look like. He has this uh, sort of a dozen different categories. His first is uh, books about God, um, the Bible, Martin Luther, John Calvin. Would you include uh, a section on, uh, on, on God in your ideal book, bookshelf? Oh, perhaps. I certainly wouldn't include John Calvin or Martin Luther. I mean... You know, these are obviously important books, but, um, you know, they're, they're somewhat uh, turgid to work your way through. Um, but, you know, no, but nonetheless, obviously important. important. I mean, this this is in part what... Um, this is also the, the challenge that you get in constructing a, you know, a sort of a, a universal canon or an objective canon sure, versus, sure. Your, versus your your own. Um, sure, but but none, nonetheless, you're, uh, you've read as widely as anyone I know. So I'm... Uh, I'm curious on on where you'd you'd put it. I'd I'd add some uh, post Holocaust writings. I think to that. Uh, I think there's a lot of quite transcendent writings about religion and grace and our place in the world that, that come out of the Holocaust. Yeah. No. I I mean I would sorry I would definitely agree on the the importance of of religion or spirituality. Um, and so you know I mean I think it's pretty important to have some passing familiarity with the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and you know, uh, you know there is there are certain writings, maybe Augustine or or others, whom are, you know who are who are obviously important. I think Emerson, uh, and then and then some of the um, you know I'd, I'd agree with you with some of the post Holocaust writing. Uh, Greek roots. He recommends Aristotle's Ethics, Plato's Crito, Homer's Odyssey, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian Wars. Um, do you have others? Do you do you like the category of uh, Greek roots? Do you have do. others you'd, you'd add there? I do. I do. I mean, I think the. Cha- I mean, at least when I was a student, I found the challenge with reading Plato and Aristotle is that a lot of their wisdom was now so incorporated within Western uh, historical and philosophical thought that it was hard. It's sort of hard to recognise it as unique or interesting, mm. um, and so. 
you know, I mean, my uh, certain my my preference with the um, with the ancients tends to be more around uh, certainly Homer, but also the playwrights um, and the poets. Um, and then for me, I would have I would definitely include Plutarch. You know, I think um, I think his great lives are really good insight into moral character and how things go right and wrong. Another of Ben's categories is Shakespeare. Um, so I uh, suggest starting with Romeo and Juliet, and uh, then Hamlet. Um, would you would you read? Would you counsel a young person to read Shakespeare, uh, or just try and get out there and get a, a cheap seat to a play? So it's hard not to counsel that people should read it. But the the, the difficulty with Shakespeare is that. Um, you know, I once read someone said, you know, some young kid, some, a, a student said that they were bored by Shakespeare and the teacher corrected them and said, you know, au contraire, Shakespeare is bored with you. Um, and I think there's, <laughs> and I think there's some, I mean, there's something in that, that, I mean, it just takes, it takes a life of, uh, you know, of, of, of experiences to really understand the depth mm. and the grandeur of Shakespeare. And so it's sort of lost on a lot of young kids, I think. Um, and so, I mean, as I, as, you know, if I'm, if you're a student, if I was encouraging students, I, I mean, you definitely want them to be exposed to that, but you want them also to know that that's, you know, as you'd mentioned earlier, nothing, you know, it's still, it's hard sledding, uh, it's hard work and, um, but, you know, to persevere because there's a lot of, you know, there's obviously great wisdom in that. And this is true of, I mean, we've spoken previously about, you know, classical music and opera. Uh, you know, and it's uh, that it's not it's not something that you necessarily immediately or intuitively understand. That it's you know exposure to it over a longer period of time allows you to understand the depth. Uh, um, and so you know, in part, what you're wanting to tell young students is to persevere. You know, you want them to you want them to sort of um, you want them to understand that if they invest a lot of time in this, that mm. it will be, you know, ultimately uh, repaid. Um, and so, you know, that not everything is is easily won in the in the in the immediate and short term. Which goes to one of Ben Sass's points about the importance of, of working hard. Uh, well, it's not just working hard. I mean, it's also. I mean, I think it's really important to have role models and mentors. That, that young people trust and admire who can say this is you know these things are hard mm. um, and uh, but they're worth it's it's worth persevering for and that you need you know a young person needs to trust that mentor that 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 is actually something worth listening to yes and um, you know because you know I was listening to one of your podcasts the other day Andrew with Barry Jones where he was talking about the difference between popular music and and classical music and was saying you know you can draw an, an analogy that pop music is like being given 50 words or 100 words and that you know they're the only words that you can use to describe things um, and obviously there is a universality to that you know everyone around the world can understand that uh, um, that that lexicon um, but that it's nonetheless narrow and constrained and constrictive and that you can, you know, everyone would acknowledge that if you have, uh, you know, a dictionary of, you know, 
30 or 50,000 words, uh, that the possibilities for, you know, for explanation and for depth are much greater. Mm. And, um, and so that's sort of, you know, I think, I think, you know, one, one way in which we might have <clears throat> overcorrected is that, you know, we tend to focus on universality and the desire for everyone to, to appreciate and understand things very quickly. And, um, you know, that they become, they become achievements that are more easily won, um, you know, and then as a result, you sort of, you shy away from, uh, from anything that immediately strikes you as difficult or hard. Um, without recognizing that everyone finds things, everyone finds those things difficult and hard to begin mm, with. Mm. Uh, but it's the perseverance and the familiarity with those things that yields significant dividends. I might be uh, guilty of uh, the sort of coddling that Ben Sass talks about, but one of the ways I've found is useful with my own kids is reading hard things to them. Uh, and I've been struck by my middle son, Theodore, who's nine, really now starting to take to Huckleberry Finn, uh, which has, you know, it's not, the language isn't quite as unfamiliar as Shakespeare, but it's it's pretty weird language that Twain is, is, is using. Uh, but if you read it out loud, you can see him really getting into the into the story and the tales and the twists and turns and the, the different layers of the friendships and, uh, and the, you know, uh, journeys and so on. You've got to edit a little bit. I don't feel comfortable using the N-word, which uh, uh, Twain uses quite frequently about African-Americans. So it's a sense of familiarity too. Um, you know, the, the, the more someone, the more someone, you know, in this case, in, in the, the more Theodore's familiar with the story. Uh, so he's not, listening, he's not listening just for the story, just right. for the plot. Yeah. Um, so he's now familiar with it and now can focus on some of the other aspects or the depth in the story or the language. Um, you know, I think, I think that's right. I like that Ben Sass has a category of books around markets. Um, he recommends Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, uh, Milton and Rose Friedman's Free to Choose, Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs and Steel. I think I would probably recommend for a young person wanting to understand the market to go for some of the excellent books that have been written by uh, economic popularizers. People talk about free economics a lot, but I actually think Tim Harford's Undercover Economist is a better insight into the way in which uh, markets operate. Uh, and there's, I'd probably go for if you want a classic for an abridged version of Keynes' general theory rather than for Adam Smith's Wealth, Wealth of Nations. Uh, but the, the genre of good economics uh, books, for whether you want to understand development economics or uh, the, uh, the economics of just about everything, to plug one of my own, uh, is, is really exploded in recent years. Yeah. I mean, I think this, this raises sort of one of the challenges, which is... Um, you know, do when when trying to understand concepts, do you necessarily need to go back to the person who was the first to expound mm, the mm. concept? So, you know, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations is not necessarily an easy read. Now, we've just been talking about the need to expose yourself to difficult and challenging works, but you know, some sometimes it's important, I think, to um, to approach great ideas more accessibly, at least in the first instance, and then work your way, and then work your way back. I mean, part of, part of the challenge for any young person is just to, um, 
to have a mental map of where everything lies in history. And so, you know, um, and once you have that, it's very easy to plug, mm. uh, plug other bits and pieces in. Um, to, to, to just to, to roll into university, you know, as an undergraduate and then just have the wealth of nations put in front of you, it's not necessarily helpful, I don't think. You, you miss all the context uh, that went that preceded that book, but also you know, that follow follow the book. And in, in some ways, you know, I think it's important that, um, as you mentioned, that there are there are other ways of familiarising yourself with um, with concepts and with history, mm. and then from there you can delve more deeply. Um, the one that you that you didn't mention, which I actually think is um, is uh, is very important, is Hayek. Uh, I mean, the Austrian economists, I think, are really um, important and influential. Um, and so they've obviously got a lot of bad press uh, you know, in over, over the last sort of 40 or 50 years. Um, but, you know, to go back and read Hayek and The Road to Serfdom is to really, you know, to really understand why uh, sort of, you know, excessive government intervention and... and and, and sort of heavy-handed socialism and communism was so unsuccessful from an economic perspective. Um, and I wonder, I wonder whether that's sort of a lesson that's, that's being increasingly forgotten today. I remember a friend once saying that in any economic policy discussion, you need someone in the room who is channeling a libertarian, uh, who is asking the question, what's the right role for government in uh, solving this, uh, this problem? Uh, he cautioned that that didn't actually mean you needed a libertarian in the room, just somebody to, uh, to play that role. I think it's a useful one, but often we're in the realm of trying to think about what government should do rather than uh, asking that threshold question as to, as to where the government should dive in. It's interesting to actually go back and read Hayek. Is it, you know, it's not as, it's not as outrageous as people often make out today. And that he was writing in the 1930s, uh, you know, in, in direct response to what was taking place in the Soviet Union and elsewhere. And so his insights are really... Uh, sort of, uh, you know, strike me as both um, commonsensical uh, and very plausible. And um, so it's, it's, it's not really a Jeremiah against uh, against government intervention, but more that very heavy-handed mm. uh, government intervention. And so, I mean, I just think one of one of the interesting, <coughs> excuse me, one of the interesting. Um, you know, one of the interesting reflections about uh, about uh, a younger generation today is that they they sort of they haven't really been exposed to um, to, to government failure on a very significant scale. Um, so their you know their defining experience <clears throat> experience was the financial crisis in two thousand seven two thousand and eight. Um, so a huge failure in markets and a, and a very significant failure from private enterprise. And, um, and so that's their defining experience. And so, the, you know, as, as is always the case in every generation, you sort of correct for the failures of the previous generation. And so, you know, you definitely sense uh, in the United States perhaps more than here, but uh, a, the younger generation definitely favouring very significant government intervention um, and I, I, want, I wonder whether that, 
is in, is in part because their immediate historical experience is around market failure, but they haven't lived through uh, many of the experiences of significant government failure, which tended to, you know, uh, be very much a 20th century story. On the domestic policy front, at, at least, uh, foreign policy, I think you, you could plausibly make the reverse argument. Yeah. Uh, I suppose we should also mention the value of great podcasts too. I think both in terms of economics and science, increasingly some of the best works being done through uh, podcasts. I think of Tim Harford's 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy uh, or uh, uh, Rush Roberts' Econ Talk, uh, uh, which delves into both science and, and economics. Um, fiction, uh, the, uh, there's obviously a, a massive uh, canon out there, but uh, wealth, wealth of options. Um, Sass talks about classics, uh, American, particularly American classics, uh, Steinbeck, uh, Twain, Ralph Ellison's uh, Invisible Man. Uh, there, I, you know, from Australian perspective, I'd think very much about um, uh, Kath Walker or Tim Winton. Um, where would you start your kids on reading great fiction if they were uh, they were keen for a handful of books to kick off with? Well, I mean, in in part, you just have to set them going. And you have to allow them to. So I mean, I, you know, I mean, um, I, I, my, I have a younger sister, and I once tried to get her interested in in reading, and I, you know, sort of gave her a whole handful of you know what I thought were the great books. But I'm not, I'm sure, I'm not convinced that I didn't deaden her enthusiasm um, by sort of uh, by opting for two two weighty tomes in the first instance. Um, Give us a handful of the choices that you you had on that that list. Um, you know, I think. I mean, I I think. I, I mean, I had some of those uh, some of those books that you just mentioned. Um, you know, I think I had Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, and um, you know, it, it it sort of raises one other. I mean, even in my own, you know, if I had to assemble the books that had the most significant impact on me. You know, I often I often reflect on things like, um, you know, Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain or, um, you know, or Melville's Moby Dick. But both those books nearly killed me to read them. <laughs> I mean, I just, both of them nearly bored me to death. Uh, just an effort of serious willpower to continue plowing through mm. vast expanses, um, you know, on the history of whaling. Uh, uh, in Moby Dick's case, but nonetheless, there was something about those books that has stayed with me, and um, you know, that, and that's, I mean, in part, that goes to what we were talking about earlier. It's, you know, so, sometimes, um, sometimes, the more valuable experiences are hard won experiences. Mm. Uh, you know, that there is value in grappling with something that uh, that's not immediately fulfilling um and so um and and both i mean both of those are just very large books uh, that took me a lot of time and so just from a you know from a numerical perspective i spent a lot of hours with them um so they've imprinted themselves on the on, on my memory um uh you know i think um my favorite australian novel is henry handel richardson's the fortunes of richard marnie um you know, I think that is just an epically a great book. Um, 
you know, that to me really, really sums up something in Australia. Uh, you know, I think it's just a tragedy that that book's not more widely read and known. Um, you know, I think, um, uh, um, you know, some of Patrick White's work I find very powerful. But again, you know, this is none, none, none of these books are easily, uh, uh, sort of easily accessible. You know, I think one of the, you know, I like Tim Winton a lot as an author. Um, one of the, you know, one of the virtues of Tim Winton is a, it's sort of very accessible uh, writing. So that is something that you could give to, to a younger mm. student and I think they'd immediately understand the message and the power and the, the imagery. Um, but I don't naturally think of Tim Winton as sort of, um, of, of writing books that, um, that have a, a deep wisdom to them. He's gotten quite dark lately too. Mm. Uh, the last last few, um, yeah, I, I find it difficult to look at a Western Australian beach without thinking about Tim Winton. Like he's he's very much shaped the way I view that part of the country. Um, similarly with Richard Flanagan in Tasmania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I thought Richard Flanagan's um, what was it the the Deep road to the, to the narrow road to the narrow road to the deep. Yes, road. I thought that was beautiful. A, <clears throat> thought it was yeah. an amazing book. Um, yeah. So, um, and also, I mean, I, I would uh, then start to broaden out with the uh, some of the uh, Indian writers. So, um, I got an awful lot out of um, uh, Vikram Seth's Suitable Boy, which I began to read because all my friends were telling me I had to read it, but then loved once I once I got into it. Um, or Rushdie's Midnight's Children, which I still shapes the way in which I think about that whole uh, period of, of Indian independence. Uh, and I preferred because it's a little bit less sort of magic realist than satanic verses, um, the, the sort of concrete grounding in the in, in the facts. So, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed. My, fa- my father-in-law is constantly uh, pressing a suitable boy on me. I need, to, uh, I need to finally get around to reading it. One other thing, you know... It has a genius right at the end of making you wish it was longer. Uh, the way in which Vikram ends the, ends the book is brilliant. And, of course, you know, I, I love the fact that this is uh, uh, an, uh, a guy who dropped out of his economics PhD at Stanford in order to, uh, to become a novelist. And so there's a, a terrific lot of, of economics in there as well, uh, particularly on the, the, sh- the uh, odd structure of uh, financing within the shoe industry. Tyler Cowan uh, often says that he thinks... Um, that a more productive way to read is to read only books in translation. Uh, he thinks that you know the, the sort of the average quality of books that are being translated is better than the sort of average quality of English uh, books that you would pick up in a bookstore. Mm. Um, as if you know the mere fact that someone has decided to translate them is in some respects a validation of the you know of the quality of the work. So long as translation costs are high, this, this holds true. As translation costs fall, this must, uh, must cease to be a useful rule of thumb. Uh, I also quite like the, um, uh, the notion that Ben Sass has that you should raise your children, uh, in terms of the, what they read, you should raise their children as if, as if some, someday they will rule. Um, and this idea that you ought to, to be giving kids great books. Um, 
I was thinking about this line, in fact, as I was watching my three kids all reading Garfield uh, comics uh, around the breakfast table the other, the, the other morning and thinking uh, that is definitely not the approach I'm, I'm taking at the moment. Um, but, yeah, that, that, that idea that you want to be pretty ambitious uh, for the intellectual devouring of their kids. Of course, they won't, they won't rule in all probability, but they'll be better thinkers for, for having been raised with that in mind. Yeah, I think that's quite a quite a nice idea. In terms of comics, maybe <laughs> maybe you should have your kids reading Asterix books at least. Uh, well, on the one hand, it's in translation. On the one hand, they're comics, uh, but on the other hand, they'll be left with a healthy dose of skepticism for Roman power and rule. <laughs> so, I mean, I think one of the you know um, one of the nice things about those Asterix comics is the sort of the perpetual skewering of the pretensions of the, of the Roman yes, legionnaires yes. and uh, and of and of and of Roman of Roman rule. Um, oh, no, but I, I, no, sorry, I agree with you. There's a, a vein of uh, Ben Sasser's too, which I'm sure resonate with the way in which you grew up of the importance of travel, uh, where he talks about the importance of walking more, packing lighter. Uh, and filling your home with maps. Uh, how did how did you? What kind of a traveller are you? And how did you develop your love of travel? Um, so I was a you know, so I did a lot of travel when I was younger, and a lot of backpacking, um, which tended to be a bit like what Ben Sass had suggested. So when I was at university, I would tend to spend the summer holidays travelling. Um, so I spent you know time in India and in Southeast Asia in the Middle East, Europe, um, uh, and it tended to be just go wherever, uh, wherever the, the spirit of the moment took me. Um, so I find it harder now, obviously, with three young kids to, to do the same thing. I travel a lot for work and I try to still, um, you know, if I have a weekend in the city, I try to just wander aimlessly. Um, uh, but you know, I do. I, I mean, I do like that idea of exploration, um, and so you know, I do think it is an important one to impart uh, to your kids. Um, not always to have a goal in mind, but mm. really to explore and to find your own, to find your own way. How do you? Do, how do you do it? Uh, yeah, I mean, so for me, the uh, experience of spending. Uh, three or four months travelling overseas just at the uh, end of my studies was was enormously important. Um, and uh, I'd studied a little bit of Italian and so that joy of arriving in Italy for the first time, being able to speak the language, uh, felt like sort of unlocking the keys to a, se- a secret kingdom. Um, but also just the, the pleasure of travelling pretty light, uh, not having a, a, an exact goal in mind, and the the com- combination of reading with travel. Uh, so there's so much that I've read that I never would have thought about reading if I hadn't been in the place. Uh, uh, to, to pick up a biography of Dali when you're sitting in Sydney is nowhere near as interesting as when you're sitting in Figueres. Um, and, and likewise for histories of the... Um, uh, the the growth growth of um, royal Britain um, all that stuff doesn't feels a bit vague when you're in Australia it feels much more concrete if you're uh, in a little cafe off uh, some cobblestone street in some dingy part of London. You mentioned podcasts before. I was once listening to a Tyler Cowan podcast, uh, which I'd highly recommend, and he asked one of his guests, uh, you know, if they could <clears throat> if they could have 
the if they could have the average American do more of one thing of one of the following things, mm. which would it be? They listed read more books, travel more overseas, or watch more television. You know what would it what would it be? Um, I'm interested to get your your thoughts on that before I'll give you Tyler's. Sure. Uh, it- travel uh, and then the reading comes naturally because there's a whole lot of stuff that is just in your daily life which you don't have to do when you're traveling so travel gives you a chunk of free time and you then use it to read um so <laughs> tyler cowan totally counterintuitively and paradoxic uh, uh, paradoxically suggested um uh, more tv and his rationale was that you know, Americans were not very good readers and they weren't very good travellers. And so by getting them to do more of things that they weren't naturally good at, uh, uh, he didn't know that the marginal utility of that would be high. Right. He thought that they were very good at watching television. And so in, in, uh, his preference was to get them improving their television watching habits um, so that instead of watching a sitcom, they might watch a documentary mm, or, mm. Um, you know, or a foreign language uh, TV show, and he thought that that had uh, was more was more likely to deliver marginal benefits uh, across the American population. Anyway, I sort of um, I raise it only because it struck me as so so odd that that was his answer. I'd take a weekend in Berlin before <laughs> watching World War Two in Color, which is you know, one of my favourite documentaries. Um, just the yeah, there's there's something. Uh, I, I'm not sure I can explain it using an economic framework, but there's there's something about being there and the experience of that that's just sticky in your mind in, in a way in which television isn't. Uh, one of the main stories that uh, people pick up out of Ben Sass's book is the tale of uh, his teenage daughter, Corrie, spending a month on a Nebraska cattle, a cattle ranch, um, her uh, ra- getting up at 4.30 in the morning in order to uh, uh, do, do, the, do the chores, um, castrating 50 bulls and finding 99 nuts, um, watching the birth of a calf, uh, learning to work hard and, and have herself outside her comfort zone. Uh, what's the what's the toughest uh, experience of this kind that you, uh, you you had growing up? Did you have a, a period a period away doing these sorts of uh, tough jobs? Where did you learn to work hard? Well, if I ever did learn to work hard, um, you know. So, um, my father had me spend a couple of days in a chicken factory once, um, plucking chickens, um, which was a pretty disconcerting experience for me. Um, so, you know, the chickens would come across in a, you know, sort of on a production line, mm. having been dunked in some solution, and you have to defeather uh, the chickens. Um, you know, the I just all I can really recall is the indescribable stench of the of the fact of the factory um you know i used to have to tour my father was a member of parliament so uh, you know i remember having to tour factories in his electorate including a you know a meat processing factory which again left me uh you know left its impression on me um but then i you know i um you'd mentioned i mean i was a uh you know, I stocked shelves in a supermarket through high school, um, uh, and eventually I was promoted to become a checkout chick, but was um, was dismissed from that role after one or two sessions. Um, back to stocking the shelves, 
Um, that, and I, I mean, you'd mentioned this earlier about how it gives you that sense of being at the bottom of the pile. Um, you know, um, I lived on a farm when I was in, I lived in Germany for a year and I spent quite a bit of time on a farm where there was uh, a lot of manual, manual labor, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe myself as being overly familiar with, um, uh, uh, um, with those environs. How about, how about you? Uh, I had a paper round in which I had to deliver uh, a dozen papers across three different suburbs. It took me uh, an hour on my bike uh, riding down some of the busiest roads uh, around, uh, around Pennant Hills and um, uh, at the end of the week after doing this for five days I would get paid $10. Uh, so clearly, I was not a particularly good uh, negotiator for uh, for, for better uh, better pay and conditions. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I I think my uh, tr- athletics training was probably more where I learned to to work hard than through doing tough manual jobs. Um, I always used to think it was funny that my dad would wake up at five o'clock in the morning and have cold showers and then suddenly discovered in my 40s I was waking up at five o'clock in the morning and finishing all my showers with uh, with, with cold water um, and yeah gotten gotten more interested in sort of stoic philosophy uh, it's really interesting when uh, you sort of think that you're depending on things and then you try doing without them and you discover actually you're not as dependent on them as you thought you were um, so you, know, you really think that you must eat uh, three times a day. Um, you try skipping meals for, uh, for, uh, for a bit. You discover that you can work perfectly fine without a, without a meal. Or you think you must have seven or eight hours sleep a night. You try, go- try going on, uh, on, on four and you discover, OK, that's those, those next few hours are, are nice, but I can certainly get by on, on less sleep if I need to. Um, and there's a sort of a liberating aspect to that of realising that, that actually you don't need all of these other things and that they are nice-to-haves rather than must-haves. One of the... Uh, I mean, they all, they all sound like things that are perfected in the military <laughs> and um yeah, it's true. You, know, you know one of one of the um you know one of the things that i really um <clears throat> you know i spent quite a bit of time in israel over the years uh, for work and um you know one of the things that i have always noticed is the way that the military you know the the, the way that um that common military experience really pervades the pervades the country and the values mm. um and you know both both that element of stoicism uh that knowledge of themselves and uh um but it's also uh you know there's a practical element of problem solving uh that gets taught in that environment and um and also i think there's a you know i think it's tremendously beneficial from a community perspective in the sense that for a year or for in the in the israelis case for two or three years you're brought together with people from right across the entire country, um, and so it gives you a knowledge, at a very early age. It gives you a knowledge of mm. of, of different segments of the of the country, um, both both from a socioeconomic perspective, but also from a you know from a religious perspective. Um, you know, and I think that's uh, you know, I think that's an extremely valuable uh, counterweight to all of the things that we've been talking about uh, with Ben Sass. You know that it's the very antithesis of that coddled, 
um, that coddled mentality. And we've spoken a lot in the past, Andrew, about whether you could replicate something like that in Australia. It probably wouldn't be a military service, but whether you could have some sort of national public service mm, mm. Uh, for you know 12 to 24 months after um, after high school, uh, which seeks to bring people together from across the country into a common purpose in order to build that sense of shared values um, and uh, and de- develop some of these traits that we've been referring to. Yes, giving people at least the opportunity to go down that path, I think it'd be, be valuable. Uh, it is interesting, though. There's, I think there's a difference between the uh, social mixing and expeditioning thing, yeah, things that are done through outward bound or scouts or venturers uh, and the... Uh, deprivations that are foisted upon military recruits, uh, which you simply can't do outside that that military setting. Um, And for all the problems with it, and a range of those have been exposed in in some of these scandals around hazing at military institutions, um, there does seem to be, uh, when you speak to, to... uh, people who've uh, to veterans, they'll, they'll they'll talk about the value of that in terms of shaping their character. Now, I find it hard as a parent to work out how to create that sort of crucible for my kids. Uh, I don't want to I don't want to punish them. I don't want to make them make, make them sad or uncomfortable. Um, but I am constantly on the lookout for how how can I push them just a little outside their comfort zone and uh, yeah, make them a little tougher. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, your your children like mine are still young, um, uh, but I think it is. I mean, I think it is important to uh, to push them outside their comfort zone, also for them not to see themselves as the center of the universe. Mm. Um, and so, um, you know, but I think a lot of what we're talking about probably starts to be more material into the sort of mid-teens and then into the twenties. Yes. Um, uh, rather than in the sort of, you know, in the early teenage years. Yes. Any final observations on Ben Sass or vanishing American adults, vanishing Australian adults? Um, no, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think um, it's a prescription that's probably, um, that's probably uh, you know, useful for, for all parents. It's sort of, you know, when I, when I first read the book, I... Uh, you know, I, I mean, at one level, it's sort of, uh, it's, you know, SAS was part of the Never Trump uh, brigade of Republicans in the Senate. It looked a lot to me like he was positioning himself for a run against uh, Trump in the primaries mm. um, with this sort of, you know, with a book which is a pay into old value, old American values of hard work and stoicism, and um, it's an easy rallying cry. Um, so you know, it'll be interesting to see how how Sass um, uh, whether he takes that up against Trump in the future. Yes, when I look at his voting record, I find it hard to see many of the qualities that I admire in uh, in, in the book. Uh, he, he seems to vote like a pretty mainline American Republican, which is a long way away from where I see myself. But I enjoyed the book, and it, it prompted me to to think about a range of these issues, particularly around, around parenting and, uh, and that, that balance between providing a nurturing, supporting, loving environment uh, while also pushing kids to be 
um, a little stronger, a little more altruistic, um, a little more um, part of society rather than seeing themselves as just an individual that's the centre of the universe. Indeed. Thanks again. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.